You know, the people that we were working, whose behalf we were working on, they didn't have Twitter in prison. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they weren't have, criticizing you. Yeah, no. they, they, weren't, they wasn't criticizing. They, they don't have Facebook, right? Like they not, they not, they not, they not trying to be Twitter gangsters where, you know, they just sit behind a keyboard and are able to anonymously uh, drag people. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I just stay focused, man. And, you know, my focus was getting people free and, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. You know, why I enjoy doing this podcast so much, we get a chance to explore the stories of people in a real way. We want you to really come away uh, knowing that we want to challenge the common narratives you may have, the common construct that, that many people think, particularly when it surrounds communities of color. Uh, today, Lewis Reed will do that for you. He is a success story, but his success story was not easy. He started off on a pretty rough path. He served 14 years in prison, but, uh, but he is now a, a, a leader. He leads the organization called Cut 50. He's not the leader, he's the national organizer for an organization called Cut 50. And his experience, his real life experience of having gone through the criminal justice system and knowing what it's like to be dehumanized, he has not forgotten his uh, number, his prison number. He remembers it, as you're going to hear, he remembers it like a tattoo because they treat you like a number. They treat you like you're subhuman. And everybody who's been through the criminal justice system is still a person. And most of those folks are still going to have to come out and reintegrate into society. That's why it's so important for us to fix our broken criminal justice system. Think about this for a minute. You've heard me say this fact and statistic over and over again. The United States of America locks up more people. There are more people in our criminal justice system when you include bail, when you include uh, you know, people that are, that, are, that are currently on parole, when you include people that are in the criminal justice system one way or another. The United States by far has the most people within a criminal justice system. We lock up and incarcerate and infect and affect more people than any other uh, nation in the world, more than China, more than Russia. Uh, we have a flawed criminal justice system. And part of that is we just, we just put away what happens to people over there. And Lewis Reed is going to tell us a real, real stories, real life, and why this matters to you. Why, she, why you should care, why we do need to cut our prison population as this organization is trying to do by at least 50%. Uh, we waste opportunities, we waste, we waste resources, and we really destroy people's lives and separate families. Because at the end of the day, it matters. That is the power and the audacity of redemption. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Louis Reed is going to be here to join me. Uh, but before we get to that show, and we're going to get to that very soon, I promise. Uh, please, please subscribe. You know, if you want to subscribe to Woke Wednesdays, it's special content that we have to users, uh, to those who subscribe to that. You'll learn about uh, some of the books I'm reading, some of the events we have coming up. You'll learn about Things First, and there are, there's a lot of exclusive content in that. So go to disruptionnow.com. You can sign up for Woke Wednesdays, and uh, I promise you'll, you'll get a lot of good material. You'll be able to ask me questions, and uh, I hope you get a chance to do that. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit the like button. Please subscribe. If you're, if you're listening to us on podcasts, I would ask that you give us a good review. Uh, that helps more people learn about disruption now. It helps more people learn about uh, all we're trying to do to disrupt the common narratives and common constructs that are out there. 
And we can't do that unless more people learn about us and hear from you. So I appreciate all the listeners we have. Uh, Pre-spread the the word. Please like. Please share. That's how we're going to make sure we can continue to go out there and continue to disrupt. But without any further ado, Lewis Reed. Brother Reed, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. I won't complain. I hear you. I know you're you're all across the United States. You said we, we, we talked a little bit offline. So you're in how many states and how many days? Uh, I feel like I'm in 60 states in, in, in 20 days, but uh, uh, I think I'm, uh, we're doing thir- uh, 13, 19, 17 states in 13 days. 17 states in 13 days. That's pretty awesome. Yes. What's, the, yeah. what's the reason for this? Like, what, what's, the, what's the reason for the crazy schedule? Because that's kind of that's crazy, man. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I'm the national, dire- um, national director. I was just about to give myself a promotion. Uh, I, I'm the national Oh, you're speaking or- into existence, brother. You know, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm the national organizer for Cut 50. Cut 50 is a uh, bipartisan criminal justice initiative co-founded by CNN political commentator uh, Van Jones and now Reform CEO, uh, Reform Alliance CEO. And I manage what we call our empathy network. Our empathy network is a coalition of approximately 3,000 people uh, nationwide, 3,000 people at large, uh, a subset of 300 organizations, and another subset of approximately 70 organizers uh, nationwide. And essentially what we do is we help the people who help the people who need the help. Right. Uh, that, that's, that's how I like to describe uh, our, the empathy network. We help the people who help the people who need the help. So we are on an empathy tour uh, where we are going into areas. Uh, I was just in Wisconsin. I was in Iowa. And last night I was in Montana. And today I'm in Nevada. Uh, really just amplifying the empathy, um, the message of empathy. Why do we need empathy in our criminal justice system? Today I will actually be meeting with the uh, um, uh, 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 state's attorney general for right. Nevada police chief, et cetera. And we're just going to be talking about the necessity for, for empathy uh, in our criminal justice system. Well, what is the necessity? Why, why, why should a person care about empathy? They, you know, they're saying, look, X, Y, Z person did a crime. Like, why is empathy important? The only thing that's important, and I, I don't believe this, but I think people mm-hmm. have this point of view, so we, mm-hmm. we should talk about it. The only thing that's important is that that person gets put away, and that's all we should care about. And that's an absolute fallacy. I think that justice is justice is a process. It's not an outcome. And, you know, you know, uh, except for the grace of God, there go I. Um, I think that if we approach the, the the issue of criminal justice from that perspective, we'll be far much better off. Uh, so f- considering I did nearly 14 years in federal prison and I met people in there who were great. Um, in terms of great personalities, uh, you know, they had uh, thriving businesses, et cetera, and they just made a foolish decision. Does that, does that singular decision erase all of the contributions that they have made to their communities, that they have made to life, et cetera? Absolutely not. I don't think that we should be defined by our biggest mistake or our worst regret. All of us are human beings and we are in the process of becoming something or someone. So I think that it makes us feel good when we try to dichotomize in us versus them. I think that we did the same thing with the, in the crack cocaine uh, uh, era. Right? Sure. Uh, there was a, a point in time in our country where 
People in affluent areas said they have an issue in the Cleveland, Ohio's. They have an issue in the ghettos of Brooklyn. Yep. They have an issue in, in, the, in the Watts or the South Centrals of, of California, right? And now, fast forward to 20 years later, now here comes opioid, right? Right. And, 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 and now they don't have an issue. We have an issue. We have an we issue. Have. It's a mental health issue. It's the public issue. Exactly. It's the community yeah, now, issue. Yeah, yeah, now it's a social determinants of health uh, uh, framework because it's creeped into affluent areas. And I'm of the notion that until you have been impacted by something, you don't necessarily empathize or you're not as sensitive to it as you could be. So yeah. the, the point of empathy is really raising the IQ for those individuals before they are even impacted uh, by an issue. You know, crack cocaine, you mentioned, you mentioned that, and I don't know a black family, frankly, that doesn't know somebody that was affected by the crack cocaine epidemic. I, I can, I can point to multiple members of my family. Uh, it actually made me, it's a reason I didn't drink till I was 25 years old. And there's a reason because right, I saw what crack cocaine did in terms of, you know, um, families being separated, how much uh, the, the time people had to do in prison. I mean, it was just, it really destroyed lots and lots of families. So I get that. What I do think is interesting though, and what I think we, and I'm saying we, I'm talking about the black community right now, need to be careful of, is that because we went through that, you're not saying this, but I've, I saw it play out in Ohio because we had a criminal justice uh, ballot measure on for Ohio, and it would have helped everybody. It would have helped African Americans, it would have helped people that are going through opioids. But, you know, I, I think a lot of African Americans had that little bit of a bitterness you can understand why they have it from the reaction of crack cocaine. Yeah. How do you yeah. how do you walk people through understanding that, look, for us to solve all the issues that happened then, we have to come together as a whole and see empathy now? Yeah, I think that, that makes so, sense. My question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I want I want to address that in three parts. Uh, first and foremost, you know, in addition to me having been a person who was formerly incarcerated, I'm also a licensed clinician as well. And I specialize in substance abuse recovery. Um, I see not just people, and that's the first portion of, of the answer to the question. I don't just see black and brown people who have been disproportionately impacted by crack cocaine and or uh, uh, opioids, right? I see poor whites as well. Yeah. And so when we had the issue back in the 90s when it was a crack cocaine epidemic, it wasn't just black and brown people that were decimated. Obviously, we were far much more disenfranchised yeah. as a result. We were incarcerated more, certainly. Yeah, yeah, we were incarcerated more. Exactly. That's where I was going to go with that. Um, but you actually saw poor whites that fit into that category as well. And so now you have this, uh, this, this, this response, this call to action around opioids. And of course, black folks, black, brown, and poor white folks, we, you know, we feel some type of way about that, right? Because when it, you had to lock up my child, or when you had to lock up me, or when you had to lock up my baby daddy, or when you had to right. lock up my mother, right? It was okay to excessively prosecute and disproportionately sentence that person because, you know, you fit within a statistical category and you should have went to school with your dumb self and you shouldn't have got involved in drugs uh, uh, to begin with. That's what the system says. So That's what the system says. Right? But now that we have to lock up people who look like the reflection of those individuals who are prosecuting them in a mirror, now it's something that we need to come together on. So I, 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 point to, I point to the strategy that we did with the First Step Act. Today, there's going to be a, there are 
2,200 people that's being released nationwide as a result of the progress that we made uh, in the First Step Act. The First Step Act was a bipartisan bill that was introduced by Congressman Hakeem Jeffries and also Doug Collins, someone who is as far left as pl- from Pluto and someone on, on the far right. right. They met right in the middle. They met right in the middle in order to bring about systemic criminal justice reform in in the federal system. You had someone who was as far left as Reverend Al Sharpton and someone who is as out of this world as Trump, who stood on the same side of an issue. So if Trump and Al Sharpton can stand right in the middle on on an issue, and if Doug Collins and Hakeem Jeffries can stand right in the middle of this issue for the betterment. Right. For the betterment of 90 percent of people who are African-American, then I think that we as, as a culture and as a people should be doing the same thing. You're, you're right. And I, I want to come back. I'm going to come back to the First Step Act because I really want to walk through some of the politics. And because that, you know, I, I think you and uh, Van Jones were unfairly criticized. I, I'm a progressive, but unfairly criticized and about that. And I want to come back to that. But uh, first, I want to go back a little more to your personal story. You know, you you said you've never forgotten the federal prison number. You you remember it like a tattoo. Tell three nine five nine zero one four. Why is that? Why do you keep that etched in you? Why is that important for you to remember in your brain? Because when you are incarcerated, you are dehumanized. <laughs> you are not. You are not a person. You are a number. When they refer to you. Um, they refer to you by your last name and or number. When you are released, they don't say, hey, uh, uh, Reed, uh, you're, you're here for release. They'll say, Reed, 13959014, report to um, the, the, the R&D, the receiving and discharging room for release. Or when they count you, you are a number. So um, I think that after nearly 14 years in federal prison and when you have been dehumanized and when you have been uh, conditioned to uh, uh, think about yourself as being nothing more than a number, it's something that you can't divorce yourself from once, once you are released. Uh, and I, I wear that number now in a sense as to where it's not it's not something that defined me. I think I took that number and I did the 1995 Puff Daddy, uh, one more chance remix to it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and I, and I emerged, I emerged from that situation into who I am now and, and what I hope to become. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I know you take that experience. How did you, how did you keep yourself from not accepting those narratives that were said about you not accepting an environment, because I think that would be hard. Like, how do you, how do you, how, how, how did you, how did you keep yourself sane? I guess is the question. Yeah, right? I think that unapologetically, I'm Christian, right? So, you know, I, I, I think that um, we need more, we need more love and we need more power, um, not just in our prisons, but we need it in our culture. We need it in our politics. We need it in our churches. We need it in our mosque and in our synagogues and other places of worship. Um, it was, it was the power of God that sustained me, you know, if, if, if it had not been for the grace of God, if it had not been for me discovering my purpose um, spiritually, because there are things that happen in life that are mes- metaphysical, right? There's only a spiritual uh, inarticulation to it. We can, we can search for words. We can try to uh, extrapolate thoughts from, from Webster and try to weave things together. But ultimately, you just know what you know, what you know, what you know. And for me, it was my unapologetic faith in God. It was me having a, um, 
uh, an education passport opening up in my mind so that I can matriculate through university. I, I earned uh, two bachelor's degrees, one in psychology, another one in criminal justice, and I went on to get my master's degree in clinical counseling. So I think that what I did was I turned that department of corrections, so to speak, into an institution of learning and also into a seminary of the sort so that I, I can develop and be who I am. Yeah. You kind of answered one of my questions about a time you've had a major trial or tribulation and how that experience shaped who you are. So you can expound on that more, but I, I'd actually like to move to a, a particular question because I read in, 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 in um, some article about you, I think it's important for folks to hear this because I, I like people to understand that, you know, people that are successful are real people. You bleed, you have insecurities, you have yes. challenges and you know, you, 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 when you, when you, when you, when you lost your first job, when you returned from prison, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that you were, that, that you, that you had thought of, that you really had thoughts of suicide. Suicidal. Suicidal. Yeah. Absolutely. I had a suicidal ideation. I want you to talk about a, that experience mm -hmm. and what you've learned from that to help you and what you, and what that can help hopefully reach some others that may be having those thoughts, maybe having those challenges. Cause it's, it's more common than most people would think yeah yeah and especially for black folks right absolutely like we, have, we, we have traumas have real trauma's we real version for and not just trauma not just direct trauma but vicarious trauma yep vicarious trauma is something that which you know you may not have been shot you may not have been stabbed but you know somebody within your neighborhood you walk by a dead body you know people who have experienced things and it affects you uh in a particular way but uh to answer your question very specifically uh, approximately two two years after i was home i had uh introduced a concept to the largest city in Connecticut, uh, Bridgeport, where I'm from. And that concept was uh, for the city to develop a uh, office for reentry affairs. Right. They, to make a long story short, they had uh, accepted my findings. They had adopted the program and they appointed me to be the first reentry director uh, for the largest city in Connecticut. We went on to have a phenomenal success. We won a national award at the U.S. Conference of Mayors for Best Reentry Practices. We replicated that program and that model in three other jurisdictions within the state of Connecticut and also in three other states. And just when I thought that I was at the apex of my career, uh, and I'm kind of doing a two-step of the sort, the record scratched. Right. And when the record scratched, the record scratched in the form of me being rearrested. And the circumstances behind that was uh, it was predicated because it was child support arrears that accrued while I was incarcerated. So, uh, you know, my, 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 the mother of one of my children uh, at the time, my daughter was almost 21 years old, uh, 20, almost 20 years old. Her mother brought me back to court for child support arrears. Right. Uh, my, uh, uh, my professional trajectory where it was, uh, she wanted compensation for having took it, taken care of my, my daughter while I was away. And that was her prerogative. Um, there was a negotiation between she and myself that actually fell through. And as a result of it, I was I was arrested. Now, you have, I, you have to think about this. I... I was I was on a pedestal. I was the poster boy for Connecticut for reentry. This is how you know I was exceptionalized, and right. I and I fed into that narrative. And when I was rearrested, it was like everybody that I thought was with me yeah. wasn't necessarily for me. And I saw people sharing the articles on Facebook, and I saw people you know with this "I told you so" type of attitude. Yep. 
And it really just harpooned my spirit because what I did was from a sincere place. And my arrest had nothing to do with my with my professional capacity. Right. This was a personal aberration of judgment and the deference of character that I displayed. However, it seemed to have it seemed to be within the professional narrative. So I just say that to say that um, you know when I slipped into that you know suicidal ideation. Again, back to my faith. I remember distinctly that there was a small, uh, uh, a still small voice uh, within my spirit that told me, "Rejoice not against me, O my enemies. Right. For when I sit in darkness, the Lord is going to be a light unto me. Um, and when I fall, I shall rise again." So I think that not just for me when I was in the suicidal uh, ideation uh, 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 space of life, but for other people, right? You know, other people's uh, fall from grace may not be um, with with as much dramatic fashion as mine was. I just happened to be rearrested. Someone else's, you know, uh, uh, a positioning for suicidal ideation may very well may be a broken heart. Right. Someone else, you know, may slip into a, a space of despair and depression because, you know, they, their baby daddy ran off with their best friend or something to that degree. And I think that as, as, as people of color, we really need to lean into, um, therapy and yeah, really absolutely. that are available to us. And, and again, I also say this as well. The church does not do us any good. And I'm unapologetically Christian, like I said, but what I am not is religious. I'm very relational, but yes. I'm not religious. I do understand that religion is the, is the discipline that keeps the relationship in line. Um, but the church has given us this fallacy as to where if you are Christian, you are not supposed to have the exactly. issue. You know, right? Like you're not supposed to be depressed. You're, you're, you're not close enough to Jesus. Then something wrong with you, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, 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 you know, all you have to do is turn to the pages of First Kings, right? And you'll see like one of the greatest prophets that that we that we revere, uh, the prophet Elijah. He slipped into a depression. You'll see, you know, a multiplicity of people, you know, even Moses. Moses you know, God, did, yep. Yeah, God had to speak to Moses and tell him, and, and even Abraham, you know, tell them to stop mourning for their dead. So I think that um, we need to lean into um, the, 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 the resources that are out there for us to deal with us as a culture, to deal with us as a people, and also to deal with us as uh, through our experiences. No, I mean, I completely agree in, 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 in our community because I think it's also there's also some uh, between black men in particular this masculine tox toxic nature that we have to do uh, that we feel like we have to do based upon sometimes being from the communities that we're from. I want to and some of the challenges we've had to have. Um, I want to talk to you though about a little bit more about that about about your about some of your failures and and it can be that one or we'll call them setbacks where however you want to say. Mm -hmm. What do you think is your most important lesson? If that was your biggest trial or tribulation, what was the most important lesson out of that? Like, what do you take from that now looking forward? Yeah, what I take from that is, is something that my grandmother reminded me of. Um, don't let a win go to your head and don't let a loss go to your heart. Yeah. Don't let a win go to your head and don't let a loss go to your heart. So stay even, uh, stay, stay equal. How do stay, you... Stay even kill. How do, you, how, do you, how do you do that? Knowing we all have our, you know, it's hard to be self-aware. How do you do that for yourself to keep yourself balanced? How do you do that? I'm, al I'm always inviting um, uh, uh, input from the people who are around me, the people by whom I allow to be into my um, in into the VIP space of my life, so to speak. Um, so again, going back to the going back to the, the the notion of Jesus, right? When you look at Jesus, you'll see that, um, especially when he was at the hardest time of his life. 
which when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he left eight at the gate. He left eight people at the gate. He brought three people closer to him when he was in the garden. And then when he brought them uh, further in the garden, he told them, wait here while I go over here and handle this. Right. And so I used I used that as a backdrop uh, uh, to point to the people who are in my life. There are some who are at the gate. There are some who see me from a professional point of view, and there are some who are a little bit closer to me. And those people who are at the gate professionally and are and or those people who are closer to me in, in personal proximity, I'm always inviting critique. Right. How do you see me today? How am I showing up as a leader? Yeah. How am I showing up as a, as a person? Right? What do you think? Um, what do you think about not not this interview that I did, but what do you think about how I handled that situation with this individual who cut me off in the street, or when I was having kind of like an off cuff conversation with somebody? So I'm always inviting um, a, a, a moral inventory from those individuals who right. are around to give me uh, to give me constructive uh, feedback and criticism. Yeah, I, I've heard it termed several different ways. So, uh, you know, uh, at, at a church service that I went to, someone said the best friend you have is someone that will actually wound you with the truth, who will use that's, the that's, truth. That's to, Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful, are, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There you go. There you go. Right. And then um, I heard Malcolm Gladwell describe what it takes to have a good team. And what you really want is a constructive rivalry. You want to have it to where people actually have some tension, but it, yes, but there but but there's constructive tension. correct creative tension correct absolutely yeah that's one of the, that's one of the things that um that was one of the things that 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 uh, Dr King did he he did not want yes men he didn't want people that was going along to get along he needed people that was going to be able to argue on um, both sides of yep. the point and and. Uh, and, and really, you know, for him to be able to come up the middle. Well, that's the reason why he had, right. He had, uh, he had Andrew Young, who was more of the conservative. And then yes, he, had, yes. he had the other people that were more no, like, we got to get it done now. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Abernathy. So, and, and he came to a balanced decision. So uh, I, I think you're, I think you're very wise to do that. Let's, um, you know, you, you, you and I have done some things together. And mm-hmm. uh, when we did the day of empathy, I remember you really discussing the importance of getting the, getting the vocabulary, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Why, why am I getting the feedback? Is that from his? Yeah, he oh, he has on headphones. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's really important to get the vocabulary right. Correct. And uh, why is that so important as we talk about, uh, you know, folks that have been, uh, that have been affected by the criminal justice system to make sure we don't say they're felons, but instead that they're returning citizens. Why, why is the vocabulary so important? Well, not just for the criminal justice population, for, but for people uh, overall. Um, I think that we should be using person-centered language because, again, people are not their issues. The sum total of Rob Richardson's life is not the time when you got drunk in college and you you streaked across uh, the campus. There's no tape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, look, bro, we didn't have fa- people weren't using Facebook at, at, the, at the frat parties. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the sum total of people's life is not uh, is is not the you know not the biggest thing uh, the, the biggest mistake that they've made. And I think that again, um, you know, language influences perception, and perception influences policy. So when you are doing this work, ultimate, the ultimate goal is to be able to reintroduce policy that's going to re-enfranchise a disenfranchised population. And the thread in order to be able to do that is that you have person-centered language. You put the person before the issue. Yeah. You would never call you know, a, a, a person who is debilitated by opioids, going back to that, a, a, um, 
a uh, a dope head. Right. right. What you would do is you would say that this you you have a person who is in opioid recovery yep. or you have a person who is in substance abuse recovery. So you always should put the person before the issue. And when you put the person before the issue, language influences perception and perception is going to ultimately influence policy. Yeah, I mean, that's beautifully said. You know, we have this podcast. This podcast is, is our essential why is about disrupting common narratives, particularly around black and brown communities. That, that that's that's the point of this whole podcast. So. Mm-hmm. Common narratives are really important because they do inform how people think, which inform actions, which inform outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. you're absolutely right on that. Dehumanization. I want to I want to I'm sure you got a chance to see when they see us. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure you did. I, I saw it, man. And um, and I know those, I know all of those brothers. Okay. Um, and, and, and as a result of, you know, seeing, you know, just probably about, about an hour into it, I just couldn't I couldn't watch it anymore. Wow. That's saying a lot for you. Yeah, been and the reason why this. I couldn't watch it, it, it was triggering. It was I had to. I, it was triggering too much for me. It was triggering, um, you know, issues that I've had as it relates to my interactions with law enforcement. It was triggering uh, issues that that I had witnessed while I was incarcerated. Yeah. So it, it was just too much for me. Um, and I did not need. Um, and while I understand, like, I'm glad that it was riveting and I'm glad that it really um, it really provoked a conversation and thought for other people. Um, I'm just I, I, I know those brothers and I've heard their stories um, in far much more graphic detail than than what the um, than what the, the series covered. And um, it was just, it was just too much. For me. What if you're comfortable saying like what was just your. If you can think of a something just so people can understand what 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 was the most I guess powerful trigger that came up? I had a trigger too that I let me, let me share my trigger with you. It's not going to be anywhere near as uh, what your trigger was, but I had a conversation with my mother about the first time I interacted with with police. And keep in mind, I, I grew up middle class, so I had to say all this. I grew up middle class in a mostly white neighborhood, but you know I'm this black kid who stands out in that neighborhood. So you're, you're probably the tallest black kid in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so to make a long story bearable, uh, I, I went to this bowling alley quite a bit and there was this owner that, or he wasn't the owner. He might've been the manager who really didn't like me. And he asked me to leave. I said some smart comment. I didn't even cuss, but I, uh, I think I said some smart comment. I, I did say some smart comment. I know me, right? I, I think I said, <laughs> right. I mean, I, yeah. I, and, and then I left and, Two of my friends, the other friends who were white came with me. We went across the street. A police car pulls up and comes in the store and says, you know what you did? Come with me and like grabs me. And I go in the car and, and my friends, which my house is right down the street, they run home to get my mother. And I remember that part. I didn't remember this part until my mother brought it up. She said, yes, I came there and I told the police officer, why is he arrested? And he said, well, he was, or why is he in the car? And, she, and he, he said, well, because he was making threats to this person over here. He said, I made a threat to the guy's life. I didn't. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom said, okay, listen, there's going to be a problem. It, it, why, why, aren't the, why aren't the white kids arrested then? And he really didn't have a reason. He said, well, this is not going to work out for you. Either he comes out or something. He's got to come out of there or I'm going to have to get arrested. One of us is not going to be happy. And <laughs> that's what my mom said. I don't remember any of this. Your mama, right? your mama, she going to jail with her baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I came out and, you know, there was no issues there, but I mean, that could have turned out so differently, so quickly, just on, just, just on any point in that interaction. 
had I just been upset or got or told the officer, like, you have no right to arrest me, which he didn't, uh, or, or if something turned or if a counter turned that way with my mother, I mean, that, that triggered that. And then I, then I started to remember it and I can't believe I didn't remember that. I'm like, God, I didn't remember this until, until this movie. And, And I'm like, and that's mild compared to what a lot of brothers have been through. But even me in an environment where I've been pretty, I've been pretty sheltered. Even I had some, inter- and then I brought back other interactions I had with police that I didn't even remember. And I had a, I had a teacher uh, from my high school reunion said he remembered me coming up to him very distraught. And I was like upset because I had been harassed by a police officer. I didn't remember that. And these things started coming back to me. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I understand. So what, what were some of the, if you're whatever situation or whatever emotion you felt like, what was the strongest yeah. trigger? Yeah. So what swelled for me was um, I was actually thinking about this one time uh, in particular where I was uh, hanging out on a street corner um, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and um, it was some white officers who had who had pulled up on us. And when the white officers pulled up on us, this was probably, I don't know, 1993, 1994. We're just out there gambling. Um, it's the summer. It's hot. You know, we, you know, just doing what we're doing. We got the car doors open. Um, we're listening to, you know, I don't know, Black Moon or, you know, uh, uh, something. That, you know, one of the, one of the you know, uh, trending uh, hip hop songs at the time. And this, this officer, they get out of the car and they're kind of like, you know, strutting their stuff and like, yeah, you know, we're out here now. This is our beat letting you, you know, you know, y'all ain't, ain't going to be hanging out here, so on and so forth. And so we just dismissed them, right? Like, you know, we just like, kind of like look at, looked at them with a dismissive, dismissive glance, like, man, get out of here. Right. And one of the cops, one of the cops got out of the car. And when this cat got out of the car, he got out of the car with his, with his, with his hand on his gun. And none of us had guns on us. Right. Right. We got, we got dice, we got dice and we got money. He, he got out of the car with his hands on the gun. And he said, he said, who wants to be, I, I remember distinctly, he said, who wants to be the next guy from Boys in the Hood? Oh, wow. And when he said that, I, I, I didn't know if he was talking about when Ricky got shot, or I didn't know if he was talking about when, when you know, you remember the scene where uh, Cuba Gooden Jr. Um, is accosted by the police officer, and he kind of like, you know, gives him the, the black officer, yeah. and he kind you know, and, and, and I remember that man. And it made me so freaking mad. Like, it, like even right now that I'm thinking about it, right. 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 Like it's, it's making me angry. And I remember literally wanting to just like, like spit in this man's face. Right. Um, just the audacity, right. That you've never been in our neighborhood. You don't know, you know, who we are. And for you to come out here and try to stretch your stuff like this and then make that reference. Uh, it just, it, 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 it pissed me off. It really did. Oh, oh, I get that. I get that. And, Cause it's a form of dehumanization and, and that officer abusing the privilege and the power that he has in that yeah. circumstance. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thinking more about to the movie, cause the movie did a lot of things for me. It was, it was very, by the way, it was traumatic to watch. It was traumatic to experience it. It was very, very hard to go through. Uh, but it, I think it was important for people to see that because it's the only show I can think about that really tells the story from those who've yes. been incarcerated. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and, and to really see what really goes on. And yes, they, they happen to not be guilty of this crime, but let's just say, even if they were guilty of some crimes, people don't deserve to be treated like subhumans. That's correct. <laughs> right. That's correct. And people need to see, this is what we, this happens every single day, every single moment in our criminal justice system. 
And I hope people were angry because they really should be. And they should yeah, use that I, anger. Yeah. And, and but that ain't that, that that anger should let light a righteous indignation. Correct. That's what I that's what I was getting to. Right. Yeah. yeah because the right problem there. is people are blind to what's going on, brother. I mean, my problem is that I think it's not it's not just we're not just talking white folks, privileged people in general who haven't had to go through these things assume that our system operates better than it actually does. That that showed how our system really operates. And it wasn't an exaggeration. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I think that for the people who think um, that our system is functioning as, as, as it's supposed to, they think that until they get involved in yep. it. <laughs> and they don't ha- and they don't have access to um, to resources, power, affluence or privilege. And the moment that that they find themselves in, in, in a system where they don't have access to those aforementioned, then 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 we have to do something about this. Correct. Um, this is this is not fair. What's happening to me? I got pulled over. You know, I got a speeding ticket and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I mean, you know, it, it is as minute or, or or minuscule as it may seem. The fact of the matter is that once you find yourself in the system, you will understand what it's like to be a Lewis L. Reed. You'll know yep. what it's like to be a Topeka K. Sam. You'll know what it's like to be a Brian Johnson and the, uh, the more than 70 other million people in the United States of America with criminal convictions. Yeah, and you talk, and it talked about their path. And I think it also talked about something you're working on too, about families and, and about how families are separated and how there's no attention put to actually making sure people can be connected to their families. You, I know you're doing a lot of work with this. So talk about why that's so important. I saw it in the show. I mean, the show made that clear why it's so important to have family bonds, but why are you guys focusing on uh making sure families aren't separated and that there's, there, there's family bonds when, when people come back after they're released. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that, you know, number one, our, our, our communities, um, our communities have been, have been decimated by tr- transgenerational, uh, uh, patterns of behavior, you know, pathology, so on and so forth. We already, deal with enough um, as it relates to our fathers being locked away, our brothers being shot down in the street, you know, our mothers having to raise our, our, our siblings, uh, you know, by themselves, so on and so forth. So as much as we can do to keep families intact, we are going to do it. Um, we know that from a stati- statistical point of view, the probability of an individual reoffending and, or not even reoffending, but if uh, uh, that individual getting involved in, uh, institutional infractions or, you know, illegality, so on and so forth, while they are incarcerated is virtually slim to none. If that person has, uh, access to family resources, whether that's visits, whether that's, uh, uh telephone calls, whether it being in proximity to, uh, uh, their last known address, et cetera. So, you know, from a scientific point of view, we know that it helps, keeps, uh, uh, the, the relationships, uh, amongst families intact as best as possible under the circumstances. Yeah. And uh, also it's important beyond having family ties after that, it's also, it's also hard to reintegrate. And I want to talk about the challenge of reintegration, which I also think the show uh, when they see us help with that too, but talk about this because you, you've dealt with this uh, living with the label. Again, we talked about the vocabulary being so, so important, but a lot of people wish that's still a new concept to understand empathy. So people still, I think default, if they don't have an understanding to seeing you as your, your lowest moment, seeing you as, oh, you're a felon. Oh, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you're a felon. 
or your whatever, they see you as that. Talk about the challenge, first of all, of living with the label and why it's important to make sure we remove that label from people. Because you've, 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 you still live with that label. I'm sure there are people that look at you differently, act differently because of things you might have done in your past. Talk about that. Yeah. I think that so, so when we label people, it it makes us feel psychologically safe. Absolutely. In some way, shape or form. I think that we say to ourselves, oh, we can, we can dichotomize and we can differentiate me from you or you from us, et cetera. Um, The reason why that label is not something that I, 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 is, is something that I think is a pejorative is because after a person has served their sentence, why should that person continue to be identified by the thing that they have already paid their debt to society over? Um, we live in a culture now, if you, if you can't even say LGBTQ are ABC, one, two, three, X, Y, Z appropriately, then you're going to have that community, you know, virtually either educate you at, at the very least, or, you know, uh, Ask, uh, or call you out right. um, uh, uh, at worst. So why is it that we can be sensitive to other communities, but we can't be sensitive to a community that is far much more impacted nationally than any other communities that are out there? 70 million. Think about this, Rob. 70 million people in the United States of America have criminal justice systems, that is, uh, have, have criminal histories. That is more than the number of people that identify wow. as gay or lesbian. That is more than the number of people in the United States of America who have HIV and AIDS. That is you, you, like, so, so if we can be sensitive to a, a group that is a minority, why can't we be just as sensitive to a group that is a, is a majority? Yeah, because as a minority, people don't, if, if you don't have to go through that, it's easy to ignore folks. That's why, you know, it's why it's so important that we tell these hard stories and people have to know wh- you know, what your process has been, what others have been to know that, you know, these are, these are people that need opportunities and they're, and they're not like, they're no, this is the most important thing. As you said, people like to label people to make themselves feel better, but you have the same ability to, to be cat, find yourself in the same situation if things were different or opportunities were different and more. And if you don't even believe that, I know this, uh, if we empathize with people and understand and have a more just criminal justice system, it reduces crime. Which is people. So if your goal is to reduce crime, then it's also important to make sure that we humanize people. So I want to bring in one of my co-hosts, James Keys. James, welcome back again. Thank you. Thank you. So if you're watching us on YouTube, and you're wondering why I have on different clothes and Lewis is on different <laughs> clothes. And we have a new person. It's because we're magic. We can just make things just appear. No, no, really. We the power shut down. You were Lewis. Where were you? I was in Las Vegas. He was in, in Las Vegas. In the middle of a heat wave. Okay. <laughs> you weren't in Vegas. And you were in power Ma- shut down. Yeah. I, the, first the Wi-Fi went out and then the power shut down and then they had to go to auxiliary power. So it was, it was a little bit of a mess at the hotel. Plus the hotel is under, uh, under construction. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's wild. Well, yeah. it's good to have you back. Yeah. It's good to be back. So you, we were in the middle of discussing, you, you, you were uh, discussing that 70 million people, uh, or actually in America have been a part of the criminal justice system. And mm-hmm. 
when you say 70 million people have been, do you mean like, how is that defined? Is that people who have been in prison or people that are on parole combination thereof? How, how, how did you define that? I'm just, well, that's that, a lot that's, of people. 70 million is a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean that 70 million people have been incarcerated. Um, there's only 2.2 million people um, in our county jails and in our prison systems that includes the Federal Bureau of Prisons as well. Uh, 70 million people, that number is indicative of those people who have criminal convictions of some kind that Mm. range on the scale from uh, the class A felony um, that may be capital in nature, all the way down to the lowest scale misdemeanor that very well may have been adjudicated with with a fine. But 70 million people in the United States of America have a criminal uh, conviction of some sort. Right. It's very wow. easy to easy, very easy to find yourself there as we talked about because we were discussing empathy. Uh, we have a local case here. I'm not sure if you followed it, but we have a, a former judge, African-American woman judge. Uh, her name is Tracy Hunter. And, you know, she's been through this long ordeal. She barely won the election. Uh, this was like 2014. There was a big contest and she had to sue. She got in office and, you know, long story bearable. She did some things that upset some people. And she ended up, uh, the prosecutor ended up bringing some charges and they, they found her, they brought all these charges, but they, they, they were able to convict on one thing, which was like public, it was like public interest in a, uh, taking, taking private interest in a public contract. Mm-hmm. And, you know, despite her losing her judgeship over this and everything else, I mean, she's not a threat to anybody. I think it's questionable mm-hmm. whether she should be, should have been charged for that, but that's here nor that's neither here nor there. The, the jury did find it just yesterday. You know, they literally dragged her up and they put her in jail. They're gonna put her in jail for six months for, for something that is. She's not a threat to anybody. She's not uh-huh. no longer a judge. It's an example of I think the United States of America is obsessed with using jail and locking up people when it has nothing to do with keeping people safe. How do we get out of this mentality of, of saying you know even if someone commits a crime, jail is not the default answer for most things. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the answer for the most severe, not for, Oh, let's find a way to lock people up to make a point just because I can do this. And I'm a prosecutor. Like how yeah. do we get ourselves out of this mentality, uh, Lewis? Cause I think it's a, I think it's ingrained in our DNA here in the United States I, in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, well, first of all, I think that we have to look at that two imperative factors. Number one, the most powerful person in a courtroom is not a judge the most powerful person in the courtroom is a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And while I don't know that particular situation, I do would like to venture out to reconstruct, um, uh, well, deconstruct, I should say that prosecution. So think about it. The prosecutor prosecution controls the charges. Mm -hmm. The judge controls the time, the amount of time, the sentence. And so there's something that's called prosecutorial discretion. A prosecutor can look at a case and say, you know, something, I do not think that this case, um, while it may have merited an arrest, um, because you can arrest someone for anything virtually, I don't think that this merits further prosecution. Therefore, I'm going to defer this prosecution uh, in whatever way, shape or form that's applicable by state law. What ends up happening is that when an individual is charged, there's something that's called the overcharging system, right? Or Mm -hmm. overcharging methodology. So what that means is that Rob uh, gets in, gets involved in a fight with uh, with another individual. Not only do they charge Rob with um, uh, with with the fight in and of itself, the assault, but they very well may charge Rob with uh, a, a public nuisance, 
or, or breach of peace of some, of some kind. In addition, while you were on your way to the uh, police department, you very well could have thrown up in the backseat of the car. So now they're going to charge you for um, destruction of government property. While you were in, in, in custody, you were belligerent. So now they're going to charge you with battery on an officer, so on and so forth. And so what ends up happening is that most prosecuting authorities know that a singular charge will not stick. Right. So they'll either upcharge, right, um, when they get someone uh, in custody or when they're prosecuting them, because it increases the probability that you are going to cop out or you're going to plead guilty to something. Mm-hmm. So, so psychologically, if you're charged with 10, 10 different things and a prosecution in their deal, they say, okay, we'll dismiss all nine charges, Rob, and we want you to pro- uh, cop out to this. In your mind, you think that that's a great deal. Because you got charged with not 10 different things and they're going to dismiss nine counts and you're just going to plead guilty to one count. So I think that to answer your question a little bit more specifically, we have to get more involved in our electoral process, not just for our politicians, but for the people who are controlling the charges in our courtrooms. And so, you know, the the one way that we can really uh, uh, help help uh, alleviate the prosecution of who we are as a people is really getting involved in who's prosecuting us as a people. Right. Going out to the ballot boxes, informing ourselves about who is, you know, running for state's attorney. If there's an electoral process in the, in your particular state for such, um, finding out who's running for judges. If there's an electoral process yeah. in your state for such, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we are involved in a process. Most times what ends up happening is that, you know, it's just like the word says in Hosea, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. We have been so, so enchanted by charisma. We've yeah. been so enchanted by personality. Yep. We get so enchanted by the high offices that are on the box. The so-called Mayors. high offices. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like like mm-hmm. the offices that 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 are so-called marquee that that happen to be on a ballot box, like mayors, uh, city council, so on and so forth, that we don't get involved in the issues that are really going to show up for us. Amen. Amen. I say, I've said it often. It's more important who your prosecutor is than who your president is. That's, that's more correct. important. That's, <laughs> that's more important. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Well, yeah. Well, now with that, though, like you raise an interesting point. How do we measure that? Are we even set up to measure that? Because, yes, the the overcharging, it becomes a measure of it becomes a, a method, excuse me, of creating leverage, as you pointed out, as you explained, where you know, I'm going to charge with five, even though really it was only one offense or mm-hmm. oh, you asked the officer why you were getting arrested. So we're going to charge you with resisting arrest. And, yeah. you know, it's it's it becomes literally a leverage game so they can play that to get either, as you said, convictions or to get you to, to plead to something lesser. But that type of stuff, like if you want to, to, to change that, get more socially responsible prosecutors, how do we even measure our prosecutors? Because right now they're measuring them on convictions and things like that. That's things that question. aren't making us better. That's correct. However, you know, one of the things that I, I firmly believe in is that the power of people is always greater than the people in power. So we need to come up with our own metrics. We need to be very forensically uh, uh, examining and really interrogating statistics. How many of us from our neighborhood have been prosecuted by this office? Uh, how many of us from our neighborhood have been over uh, excessively prosecuted, disproportionately, disproportionately sentenced? How many of us have been, um, how many cases do we know that in this particular instance, 
it, it very well should have been dismissed or it should have mm-hmm. been a deferred prosecution or it should have been uh, some type of uh, pretrial deferment. And if an individual completes a, you know, some type of uh, program or something to that degree, then the charges sh- should be dismissed. We need to really uh, assemble a coalition of, of think, uh, of, of think uh, a, a coalition that is going to be thought oriented mm-hmm. and is really going to be able to prosecute statistics so that we can say, okay, this is the metric that we are no longer accepting. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have, if we don't identify a candidate who is going to, uh, uh, you know, exercise discretion, mm-hmm. uh, and equity and justice for all, mm-hmm. um, as, as required or as in, as in, as is in the spirit of the constitution, um, then we'll raise someone else from our, right. uh, from amongst our own. Mm-hmm. We'll, 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 we'll take, we'll take Rob, Rob Richardson's law degree and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll prop him up and we'll prep him and we'll make him our own prosecutor mm-hmm. uh, or, or our district attorney, et cetera. But I think that we need to stop looking at from outside of ourselves. Yeah. We really yeah. need to, you know, assemble. We really need to coalesce and we really need to be interrogating the facts um, that, that are presented and, and really impact who we are as a people. Well, this idea just came to me. And so, you know, I think we can, we should do something and and maybe we can work with you guys on a national level on this. But uh, as you probably know, uh, prosecutors are essentially allowed to discriminate because there's been prior cases that, that have shown prosecutors have been biased and that, and that evidence was presented to the Supreme court. The Supreme court said, you know, well, what, whatever they can do that, that's their, that's their discretion. But as James often says, you know, light often shines. When light, when light shines, people don't want it to shine on something that they're doing wrong. So in, in this era of big data, perhaps something that Cut50 can look at or DreamCore or whoever, and mm-hmm. I'd be willing to help you out to get some folks, is to develop an app where people can start uh, documenting when they are prosecuted by who. Mm-hmm. So they yeah, will know the data yeah. as it comes along because... Okay, maybe the Supreme Court can't use it, but you know we can use this data as it comes along, and people can say absolutely in real time. In real time, you know, so that's something we can do in the era of big data. So, you you know, it's it's interesting that you say that, Rob, because just this morning I was on a telephone call, uh, and one of the individuals uh, on the call was talking about how they have not been able to get data from the United States Department of Justice Bureau of Prison that was as as recent from in for 2019 but the recent data that they have is from 2016 2017 wow. so if wow. we can if we can if we can track and this is about people who have been released this is about people who have you know certain offenses so on and so forth so if we can track if we are able to track uh, impressions and if we are able to track you know how many retweets or you know what what's trending in real time then i think that you know that definitely is a thought and i don't think that it's a novel thought i think that is something that we should be um really uh exploring oh it's doable it's doable yeah yeah absolutely it's absolutely. totally doable i mean i can mm-hmm. i mean so let, let's have that as a note as a side note conversation because yeah. i do think it's I, I think it's really really important that just came to my mind now uh speaking of prosecutors and then we'll move off of this for a minute uh when they see us, we talked about that earlier and the mm-hmm. reaction you had uh, and how hard it was for you to watch it. Uh, James, uh, you know, uh, Lewis couldn't, ro- couldn't finish watching it, but for good reasons. Like, it was like reliving some of his life, and I get it. Um, but I want I wanted to discuss the reaction of the prosecutors, and particularly mm-hmm. as we talk about prosecutors and um, how do we get them beyond what we say sh- shedding the light to get more prosecutors to understand the need for empathy 
Because you had these prosecutors even after being presented with clear evidence that that these five, that the five that were accused did not do it, still wanting to stick to their stick to their guns to say, well, you know, they shouldn't have confessed to it. Like that makes it okay for them to be charged. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, how, I, how do I think we that get were, that? Yeah. I think that they were, you know, people get invested in, in whatever the issue is. Exactly. Um, and then they dig their heels in and then they take a defensive posture on it. Um, so you think about this, think about the, the woman who unfortunately is sexually assaulted. And from a cultural point of view, she can't, or I wouldn't even, let's, let's not even say a cultural point of view. Let's just say that the police present to her, Hey, this is a picture of the individual who we think did it in her mind. Even if initially she wasn't able to identify the individual in her mind, now she's locked into right. that notion. This is the person who hurt me. Then here, fast forward 10, 20 years later, where DNA evidence comes out and says that this person wasn't, isn't the one who did it. The mm-hmm. individual in their mind, they don't think, you know, it's hard for them to, to, to reconcile right. what they have been told and the internal narrative that they have had mm-hmm. all of these years versus what the actual evidence and the actual, the post evidence, I should say, um, is producing. So I think that what ends up happening is just like how in society, we think that if an individual is arrested for an offense and if the individual is prosecuted for an offense, the, 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 the police don't make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And, and one end, we think that the police don't make mistakes, but on the other end, we acknowledge police do make mistakes when, when it's, it's proven that police have made mistakes. Right. So I think that in the incident instance of, of, uh, of the central park five, uh, prosecutors, I heard a, an interview that the lead prosecutor did. And she said, what the public at large didn't know and or what the documentary didn't highlight was that they were in the park that day. That yes, they may not have committed the sexual assault, but they committed an assault of other, of a person. So let's, 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 let's say hypothetically that is true. Right. And let's say that they were in the park. Let's say that they did commit an assault on other people. Let's say, uh, you know, they, they, they fought someone, you know, or or whatever have you, does that warrant, does that warrant a prosecution for the length of time and to be exposed to the level of trauma that they were exposed to, um, as opposed to prosecuting them on the lesser charges. While, while that question is suspended in the air, I think that the other question is this, what is wrong with saying I messed up? Well, that's, you just hit on it right there. That's the issue. The issue, we cannot overlook how human uh, nature plays into this. People don't want the guilt. And Mm -hmm. so when confronted with the evidence that what you believed all this time or what you acted on is not true, many people, it takes a very, very, very big person to, to acknowledge, oh man, we must've messed up. That was horrible. Mm -hmm. Most people will, as you said, go into a defensive posture Mm -hmm. posture. She's not facing any type of legal jeopardy. The defensive Mm -hmm. posture is for herself. Mm -hmm. She feels better about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Or so the victim feels better about the victim has demonized these people for 10, 15 years in her mind. And then now all of a sudden, Nope, they didn't do it. Our minds, our visceral reactions don't flip like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. like, well, what do I do with the, all of right. the anger and, and, and hate and disdain? Who do I, who I, do I direct it to? And, or can I even take it off of yeah. them? Like, right. It's not like right. you just, it's not a light beam that you just mm-hmm. focus wherever you want to focus. And that piece, I mean, and that's where we really have to, to, to learn to be better. And w- whether it's through exposure, whatever, it's, it's just 
the, we have, we don't account adequately for human nature in a lot of the way these things are set up and the way mm-hmm. humans interact and react to certain situations. The prosecutor, by saying that, it's ridiculous that they should be prosecuted for sexual assault if they committed some other assault because mm-hmm. prosecuting for the crime they committed. Correct. And, Correct. Like that's easy, but right. she feels better saying, well, these guys were guilty of something. Mm-hmm. And, and so therefore what I did was justified to yep. me. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that piece, I mean, because that's exactly what you see happening when, when people say, Oh, well it's DNA. It didn't, it wasn't them. Right. And they defend it. It's like, well, hold on. <laughs> you're defending this. You know, what fight are you fighting? You're like, nobody's yep. coming after you. It's, it's for themselves. And it's that argument world. plays out over and over and over again. There, there are many victims like, I don't like to call them, let's, let's call them the exonerated five mm-hmm. uh, all over this country. Mm-hmm. This oh, happens, yeah. that, that happens oh, every yeah. single day. It's happening right now. Uh, and so people have to know that it's, it's costing, I mean, not only did it cost us a lot of money, it, 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 it allowed a rapist to keep raping, go out there mm-hmm. and violate people because, you know, there were, there were folks that had their mind made up on doing this. And this is, this is something we see play out over and over and over and over again. Uh, and unfortunately, Rob, it, it plays out over and over and over again. And we are the recipients yes. of, of, of that play. You know, and, and I mean, think about this, man. Like, how many times do, have we opened up the newspaper and there is, you know, someone who does not look like the hue that we, that we reflect, uh, who comes from an affluent neighborhood who has been sh- shot while unarmed by a police officer? Mm. It just doesn't happen. How many times have we opened up, you know, watched the evening news and saw there was an exonerated white man um, as a result of a DNA testing, it rarely happens, right? Like, you know, we are, again, we are disproportionately impacted by these issues. Absolutely. Us. We are. We, 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 we. It's, it's us. No question about People it. Look like you, me, light-skinned brothers with green eyes, <laughs> right? dark-skinned brothers who got, you receded hairlines, like all, oh, it, it, it's, it's us. We're, we're disproportionately impacted by this, you know? So it, it really, um, it really sparks like a righteous indignation in my spirit, man. Yeah, um, just to even, you know, have to have conversations like this. Mm-hmm. You know, why do we have to have conversations about, about having our people develop a coalition so that we could identify an appropriate state's attorney, right? Why right. do we have to have a conversation about developing an app? that's going to track in real time how many of us are being prosecuted and what we've been prosecuted for. Like, like, come on, man. Mm -hmm. Like it gets so exasperating that we have to even have this conversation. And again, this is not 1969. This is not 1929. This is almost 2020. Mm -hmm. It's almost 2020. Yep. It's almost 2020. And it has not been a linear process at all when it comes to civil rights race in this country. It's been zigzagging, going back and forth. Uh, we have to make sure it goes in the right direction. Uh, let me uh, turn to some legacy questions as we, as we kind of wrap up. Uh, what important truth do you hold, Lewis, that very few people agree with you on? I think that when I look at my involvement in the First Step Act, and when I look at how we have been able to work with an otherwise obstinate White House, on freeing people, the majority of which happens to fall in a black, brown, and poor white demographic, there are people who cannot divorce themselves from 
the notion of who President Donald J. Trump is. And they cannot understand how we could go into a White House that has been openly hostile on immigration issues, that has been abstinent, you know, uh, uh, obstinate, I should say, on uh, foreign policy, so on and so forth. They cannot understand how we could go into a, uh, to a space with an individual who appears to be a bigot and who, you know, by by large opinion amongst us uh, is not friendly towards us, how could we work with someone as such? And my response to people is always this. When I was incarcerated, and for the people who are incarcerated, you don't care if whether or not it's Donald J. Trump, you don't care if whether or not it's the resurrection of LBJ. You don't care whether or not it's a dancing bear. So long of that somebody signed your uh, procl- emancipation proclamation, so to speak, to get you your freedom. And families don't care about who is in the White House so long as their loved ones is in their house mm-hmm. uh, for Christmas, for New Year's, for birthdays, for Thanksgiving, so on and so forth. And so... A lot of the criticism uh, uh, that I have been assaulted by and that people disagree with me with on is working with this administration. And one of the things I always say is, again, you know, I got 99 problems with 45, but the First Step Act ain't one of them. You know, you think about it. You, You think about it. If MLK was not precluded from working with the LBJ administration. And LBJ was an open bigot. He used the N-word in, in the, the White House more than a little bit. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover is someone that we don't even have to go into a, a, a full conversation with or about. <laughs> um, if that didn't preclude MLK from walking into the White House to get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed, then who am I? to say that I'm not going to work with, a, with an administration who wants to not just free my people, but free your baby daddy, but free my cousins, right. but free you know, my, my, my brothers and my sisters to, to prohibit the shackling of pregnant women while they're incarcerated, to prohibit the uh, uh, placement of juvenile solitary confinement uh, for individuals who are in federal prison, to, to recalibrate and rectify the crack cocaine disparity Mm -hmm. that the Obama White House wasn't able to do as it relates to the retroactive uh, uh, retroactivity provision. Who am I? Who am I to say, well, you know something, let's wait for another administration. Let's wait for another Congress. Let's wait for another Senate. You know, one of the things that MLK said is that there's a fierce urgency of now. People who are not impacted by an issue, they have the luxury of saying, let's wait. Mm -hmm. But for those people who are impacted by the issue, yesterday was too long. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, and, and today ain't soon enough. Mm-hmm. We need to do something now. We need to do something right now. And so there was a spirit that I tapped into from the civil rights era around the notion that there is a fierce urgency of now. And I had to set my face like Flint and I had to continue to walk towards the, the mark of the high calling of God that he had placed in and on my life as it relates to the First Step Act. And even to this day, you know, there are people who are 
uh, you still get uh, criticized. Like people, I, I've still seen to, to your point very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. You know, I, I remember you and Van Jones, and I saw it was some brutal criticism. And I, I, I pushed back on some of my friends. Said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, time out! Like, wait, like, okay, I, I get that you don't like Donald Trump. Neither do I. However, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let, let, let's focus on what's in front of us. And if this frees people, why do we care? Mm-hmm. Why do we care? Yeah, why really do we, bizarre yo, way to pick. You know, why like, do we care? Well, yeah, if, if the president of the United States is in office, you know, if, if the president of the United States is going to get behind something that is beneficial, then, you know, it, it's really, as you said, where, where the urgency is, that's all from people that are sitting on their couch. And don't have to accept collect phone calls. And exactly. don't have to put commissary on, on, on people's books. Exactly. And so, you know, that urgency is now for someone who's behind bars or for people who have been advocating for this for a lot of time. You know, you're, you're, you've been working on this for a long time. You're supposed to just wait now, sit on your hands for four years or however long. That's, I mean, that, so it's, it's a little disingenuous to do that because you are definitely coming from a place of comfort and saying, hey, you know, we, we should not fight for other people to, to mm-hmm. be in a better place for and, this period of time. And because James, of who's in the White House. Right? And they were harsh. And they were harsh. They were harsh at you guys. They were, I mean, they called Uncle Tom's. I heard all of that. I, I actually pushed back. I said, hold on, hold on. No, they're not. I said, how are they, if we get this, if, we, if they get this accomplished, this is helping people. How are they Uncle Tom's? Like, I can't believe people even use those terms to talk about this issue, but it, it tells you how tribal everybody is right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that also, you know, one of the things that people forget is just because I can weave a sentence together and just because, uh, you know, I have access to, you know, uh, some people, you know, a few prominent people, people forget that I, I came from federal prison. My, mm-hmm. my, my, my federal prison number is one three nine five nine zero one four. I was in federal prison for almost 14 years. And so how can I be a sellout? What am I selling out to? I'm not selling out. I'm actually buying in. I'm buying into a concept that people on the left and on the right can meet right in the middle to free people who look like me people who sound like me, people who I left behind when I was released, people who I know that were excessively prosecuted and disproportionately sentenced by a failed criminal justice system in the United States of America. I didn't sell out. I bought in. I bought into a radical concept that we can get this this happen. And as a result of me buying in, what ended up happening is that we end up getting people out. Oh, you could tell yeah, this man's a pre- preach. <laughs> that was work. good. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, when Nixon when it brings up affirmative action, I mean, do you say no? You say no, no, no. We we gotta wait. You know, we gotta wait until somebody who we like better, mm-hmm. you know, is, is doing this. No, I mean, it's so you know, it, 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 I commend you, and I mean, it's it's something that the, the the criticism is very it's very short sighted and small minded in that sense that you know you're saying I only want to work with people that. I either like or I agree with. But if you're working towards your objectives and things that you hold dear, that's, as you said, that's in no way selling out. That can't mm-hmm. be selling out. That's mm-hmm. working towards what you've been working on. And so, right. you know, it's, it's very, like I said, it's very unfair and, and it's, it's, it's small minded in, in, that, in that way. All right. But, you know, I will also say this too. You know, the people that we were working, whose behalf we were working on, they didn't have Twitter in prison. <laughs> they, <laughs> they weren't criticizing you. No. They, they, they wasn't criticizing. They, they don't have Facebook, right? Like they not, they not, they not, they not trying to be Twitter gangsters where, you know, they just sit behind a keyboard and are able to anonymously uh, drag people, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I just stay focused, man. And, you know, my focus was getting people free and, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah, and that, now that's a great job. Yeah, now we are in the implementation phase where we are trying to make sure that the people that we got free 
uh, have appropriate resources to be able to navigate out here on this side of life. I mean, think about this, Rob. I had a conversation with an individual who served 20 years on a life sentence last week. And the week before he was in federal prison without without the slightest bit of light wow. at the end of his tunnel. Mm. As a result of the First Step Act, he was free from a life sentence after serving 20 years. Mm. You know, like if nothing else justifies what we've done, that justifies it. Yeah, that's great. Two more questions. Uh, one, you have a committee of three that can be your advisors to give you advice on life, business, whatever. Tell me who those three people are and, and why. Alive or dead, right? Alive or dead. Uh, okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Alive or dead. You can even, um, hey, they, they, don't, they don't have to be real. You can tell me like, I had somebody, somebody tell me some superheroes and that was them. So I like, whoever, tell me, yeah, tell me who yeah. these people are. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think that the first person is, uh, MLK. Okay. Uh, just from, just from his experiences, not just from a, 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 a civil rights leader perspective, from, but from a pastoral perspective and from a, uh, a privately having failed um, perspective, I would really want to get the wisdom and, and the counsel and the guidance of an individual uh, as such. Uh, I think that the, another person by whom I, I would have loved uh, to be around or have, you know, got it from, and I, it's hard for me to say this, uh, without like divorcing from myself, from my spirituality, but Jesus, uh, you know, just, just, just the man himself, right? Like I have the opportunity to be able to, uh, have that relationship through the Bible and, and the words that he left forward, uh, for us, but just to kind of like be in that space. Now my life would be dramatically different. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I really think that, um, yeah, Jesus really advisor would make your life very different. You're like, Hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I really can't do that. Right. Uh, and, and I think that the other person, Oh, I kind of went down on my chair. Well, but now hold on. Now, now Jesus was, was loving and accepting of, yeah, of everyone. So I don't, yeah, yeah. Life was, may not I, be that different. He, oh, okay. he, well, he yeah. helped you as far as, you know, all right, let me scratch that. Let me, let me scratch that. Let me scratch it. Cause I always, I think that I already got Jesus. Let me, let me just, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me, let me, let me add David. Let me add David. Let, oh, let David's David a good one. Yeah. David, the second yeah. King of Israel yeah. with, with the, with David's complexities, with him being overlooked, undervalued, um, coming from the shadows, you know, et cetera. I think that David would have been, you know, a, a person that I would just love to have had David would be intimate good. conversations with. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a and I, a truth, truth be told, I think that the other person, um, and, and this is a toss up. Um, I think that the other person is, is a person by the name of uh, Glenn E. Martin. Okay. Uh, he is, he is a, a criminal justice advocate. I'm, I'm very closely uh, connected with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, a lot of my leadership development has come as a result of being mentored by him. Um, so I think that those three, three people in particular really would round my life out, you know, all the more. Great. Final question. You have a billboard ad, Google ad, whatever you want to call it, that represents your belief to saying whatever, what is it saying? Why does it say that? My history is not my destiny. All right. My history is not my destiny, and I think that is self-explanatory. It is. Where I, yeah, where I've been, what I've been through, is not a, a, a final determinant of where I'm going. Hey, amen. Louis nice. Reed, hey, nice. look forward to working with you in the future, man. It's been an honor getting to know you. Um, hopefully we see each other soon. Appreciate you, man. And we're gonna, we got to connect on that app. No, let's do that ASAP. 
I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Stay woke if you want to stay free. I'm Rob Richardson. I'm James Keys. And we'll see you next time. 